Parker. This is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. Underwater, in every sense of the word. It's a position some homeowners in the Midwest are in right now, after historic flooding. But we're all too familiar with it following Hurricanes Florence and Harvey, too. And a program that's meant to help can leave people trapped. For this episode of Warming Signs, I spoke to Rob Moore, Senior Policy Analyst at the National Resources Defense Council, to dig in to the National Flood Insurance Program, which, by the way, is up for reauthorization by Congress by May 31st of this year. We talked about how it works, where your tax dollars are going, and where it all falls short. Every homeowner needs to hear what Rob told me, but especially anyone looking to buy a home. Rob, thank you so much for joining me and talking about one of my favorite subjects, the National Flood Insurance Program. It's my pleasure. Always happy to talk with a fellow geek on the National Flood Insurance Program. It seems like such a silly thing to nerd out about, but it is complex, fascinating, has an interesting history. But I want to start at the very beginning here. Um, A lot of people don't know what the National Flood Insurance Program is. And I think some people are a part of that program, but don't realize when they're paying their premiums that they are a part of the NFIP. So can you explain in basic terms what the program is exactly? Yeah, the flood insurance program was created uh, in the late 60s and early 70s to address a problem that we had in the United States and that private insurers were increasingly unwilling to underwrite flood risk. There had been a series of major flood disasters in the United States, and it was unprofitable for private insurers to cover those types of risks. So homeowners and business owners no longer could get insurance against um, flood disasters. So the government stepped in and created a program to fill that void. Interestingly, though, um, it's much more than an insurance program. And I think people who even buy insurance through the flood insurance program don't know that. Um, So as the name implies, it obviously provides insurance, but it also has a handful of other really important functions, uh, including mapping flood risk uh, in more than 22,000 communities in the country. Uh, It also sets minimum development standards that communities must abide by for floodplain development. And it's a primary source of information for individuals, government agencies, developers, engineers about flood damages and flood risks. And when we think about flood risks and these disasters that you're talking about, Hurricane Harvey really comes to mind because that was just such a massive scale example of flood damage um, to individual properties. What did we see happen with Hurricane Harvey and the National Flood Insurance Program? How, mm. Is that uh, a huge cost that went into the program, or were not a lot of people insured? Well, yeah, it was actually both. Um, it's a hugely... Um, there were huge damages in that, uh, in that storm, and many of which the National Flood Insurance Program covered. Um, so it it will be one of the most expensive storms, 
um, as far as damages go for the National Flood Insurance Program. And frankly, there should have been far more damage claims filed, but only about 15% of the residents of Houston, Texas and Harris County, which is uh, the county that Houston uh, is within, uh, actually purchase flood insurance. And that's, that's a problem you see around the country as well, is that, that, that there are not enough people probably purchasing insurance. Um, I think the bigger problem is that so many Americans live in areas that are now prone to flooding and growing increasingly vulnerable to flooding. So simply getting insurance is not a complete solution. Speaking of that, there are a number of repeat flood loss properties. Um, And there have been some articles in recent years that have come out that kind of pointed to like, hey, there's, you know, some homes that have 10 times that they've flooded and that you've rebuilt in the same area. How common are these repeat flood loss properties and can you think of some of the most like egre- egregious examples of one of those? Uh, as of 2015, there were about 30,000 properties that FEMA classifies as severe repetitive loss properties. So these are homes that on average have flooded about five times uh, and being rebuilt by the National Flood Insurance Program each and every time. Um, at the upper end, there are properties, a small number of properties that have flooded 30 plus times what 30 times yeah um how do you live like that how do you that's like a Um, constant state of rebuilding yeah it it is a near it is a near constant state of rebuilding um most of these properties are are in the five to ten number of uh floods and that that that's still an intolerable amount of flood damage. Now, in, in some cases, the owners want to keep rebuilding. Um, in fact, I think if you, go, if you go back in time, I think a lot of criticisms of, of FEMA was that we were somehow subsidizing the beachfront lifestyles of Americans through the National Flood Insurance Program by letting their homes get damaged, and then the, the flood insurance program would pay to rebuild these affluent Americans' homes. Um, what we have found in looking at the data on these properties is, is quite the opposite. Uh, the vast majority of these homes are, are, appear to be owned by low and middle income, middle, middle income Americans, at least just based on the property values. About um, something less, just less shy of 80% of these homes are worth less than $250,000. And when you look at those properties, uh, the single family homes uh, worth less than $250,000 on average are worth about $110,000 and have already incurred about $134,000 in total damages. And for many of those, those people, um, they would like nothing more than to never file a flood insurance damage claim again. Um, living with the constant stress of wondering, is my home going to flood? again, every time it rains, um, having to go through the agony of rebuilding your home and putting your life back together after each and every flood, uh, watching your home slowly lose value over time and lose your equity in that house because, you know, flood-prone homes don't generally 
uh, increase in value. Right. So to that point, I hear a lot of people, why don't you move? That's such an easy sentiment to say, why don't you move whenever you are not the one with the vast majority of your net worth, your equity in that home, and then you can't sell it because who's going to buy it? You are, you are in many ways trapped uh, in a situation nobody wants to be in because um, if you have flood insurance, the only assistance that's readily available to you after a flood is to rebuild. The flood insurance program primarily helps you rebuild. Uh, it will not help you relocate. Uh, in its current form. And that's something that we're hoping Congress is going to change this year is, is actually make it possible for the flood insurance program to help buy out a flood prone home uh, and help these people relocate. But, but you're exactly right, Kate. I mean, imagine living in a home that floods uh, all the time. And, and I hear the same thing that, that you just repeat, that you just said, you know, why don't, why don't they just move? Well, first off, you have to sell the place. You have to find somebody that will, is willing to buy your property. Uh, given its flood history. If they are willing to buy it, they're certainly not going to pay what you paid for it. So you're going to have to take a loss on it. If you're a lower, uh, moderate income American, you can ill afford to take that loss. And maybe you live in a state where you don't have to disclose the flood history, but now you're just passing uh, that, that, that hazardous property on to another unwitting homeowner. And most people don't feel really good about doing that either. So, you know, the way the flood insurance program works, uh, people get trapped either in a situation of having to rebuild over and over, even though they would rather do something else, or uh, they get forced to play, uh, they get forced to be a participant in a dangerous game of musical chairs, passing uh, flood-prone property from owner to owner uh, until, that o- until the last owner finally gets stuck with the, f- with the problem. Uh, and either gives up and abandons the house um, or takes some other action. And that's why people can't just pick up and move. That is uh, one of the main reasons. And it's one of the big things that we're trying to get fixed in the National Flood Insurance Program. Um, Looking at the data on these properties that, that flood repeatedly, and these are kind of the canary in the coal mine, right? I mean, the properties that are already severe repetitive loss properties, we're going to have millions of these properties in the coming decades as floods like we're seeing in Nebraska become more common, as storms like Harvey and Florence and Michael and Irma and Maria happen more frequently, uh, and as sea levels rise on top of that. Um, we know from looking at the properties that are already out there that for the majority of them, it would actually save the flood insurance program money to buy these properties out and avoid paying another 5, 10, 15 claims in the future and would, most importantly, alleviate the families that live in those homes of the burden of fearing uh, for a flood every time it rains and watching their life savings slowly drain away from them as they constantly have to repair a flood-prone house. Are we doing enough to educate and prepare home buyers for what's going on? Because you mentioned earlier the community standards for um, that you have to abide by to be a part of the National Flood Insurance Program. Are there instances where communities don't want to abide by those standards 
and then therefore don't qualify for the program in those circumstances are our homeowners or I'm sorry, home buyers aware of that risk that they're taking on? Well, there's, um, there's kind of two aspects to that question. The first of, you know, our communities complying with these standards is we have no idea. Uh, FEMA does not make a habit of publishing information about the uh, compliance of communities with the minimum standards of the National Flood Insurance Program or even any more stringent standards that communities may have adopted on their own. Um, it's a complete black box. Uh, FEMA keeps all that information on community compliance to itself and very little, if any, of it's published uh, where the public could gain access to it, uh, which is a problem that we're also wanting to see Congress address. Um, on the issue of home buyers and how can they be informed about flood risks, uh, that is unfortunately largely left to states. Uh, states determine what must be disclosed in a real estate transaction to a home buyer or even a renter in a, uh, in a, in a renting situation. And uh, what NRDC and the Sabin uh, Center for Climate Law at Columbia Law School found in, in research we did last year is that 28 states have either no disclosure requirements or have quite inadequate disclosure requirements. So a homeowner will never be informed if a home has a history of flood damages. A homeowner will never be formed by the seller. Uh, I'm sorry, a home buyer will never be informed by the seller if they have a legal requirement to purchase flood insurance, either because of the property's location or because the current owner has received federal disaster aid, uh, which obligates all future owners to also purchase flood insurance, uh, that information may never be given to them. We're going to pause for just a moment here and get back to Rob in just a second, but I wanted to interject one of our recurring segments, Warming Signs, because all this talk about a home flooding repeatedly really sinks in when you hear from someone going through it. Olga McKinsick is all too familiar with flooding. The NRDC spoke to her about what it's like to have her Louisville, Kentucky dream home turn into a nightmare. My house flooded in 1997, in 2006, in 2013, and in 2015. It put our lives on on pause. And this is where the water just kept coming. It travels all the way to my home. It was 18 to 20 inches every single time. When I reached this point, the water was all the way, all the way up to the third step. In the family room downstairs, um, when it flooded, there was carpeting down there, so we took the carpeting up and we put linoleum down. And then the next time we flooded, it flooded, we had to take that up and we put uh, tile down. The last time it flooded, I'm not doing anything. It's concrete, so we just painted the floor. This is where the water came up. We had to cut out the drywall there. So we didn't replace the drywall here because we felt like it was a waste of time, a waste of money, because it's just gonna get flooded again. 
Just three doors down, there's a house that also flooded a lot. Just as many times as my home has flooded. And they were able to kind of maneuver through the system. And now that home has been removed. When they acquired that home, they knocked it down and turned it into green space. And that's what it should be here. It should be just green space. You know that property that we purchased back in 1986 that we thought was such a wonderful, tranquil, lovely place. It's a nightmare to live here with the, with the thought and the anticipation that it is going to flood again. And I don't want other people to have to go through this. Olga's story is devastating and way too common. But it's not just families like hers that foot the bill after a flood. It's taxpayers. We're pitching in, too. Let's get back to Rob. And as a part of the National Flood Insurance Program being subsidized, um, we've bailed this out more than once as taxpayers. How many times has that happened over the years? And why is so much of that financial burden being put on taxpayers you're you're challenging my nfip trivia knowledge here so <laughs> i i could go uh, all day i love talking i love I digging into the nitty-gritty of this thing because it's just like this behemoth I, I don't know the specific number of times that congress has, has essentially had to bail out the program um they first uh the first time they did this in a big way was right after hurricane katrina uh, the program had generally um, run a positive balance sheet uh, until Hurricane Katrina, and that's that's what pushed the program into into uh, into debt. That's interesting. Uh, the huge, that's yeah, it, it generally was working the way it was designed up until uh, Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Sandy pushed it into a, an even deeper financial hole, and then um, that hole has continued to deepen. Um, most recently, Congress forgave $16 billion in flood insurance program debt uh, in the aftermath of hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria. Um, uh, but the program still is about $20 billion uh, in the red. And that's after that $16 billion forgiveness? That's correct, yeah. And it's and it's basic accounting. I mean, it, it, the program collects much less in premiums than it pays out in damage claims. And there are, um, you know, uh, even an, an economics 101 student would be able to tell you, well, in that situation, you either have to increase revenue or you have to decrease the amount you're paying out um, or some combination of the two. Um, increasing uh, the amount that people pay for insurance is politically... Um, unpleasant, I guess, for members of Congress. Nobody wants to have to pay more for flood insurance. And if they find out that premiums are going up, they will call their congressman and, and say they don't want to do that. Not to mention the fact that, that simply increasing premiums is also, there's an unf there's a fairness issue and an equity issue, especially for, for lower income people. And you can't tell somebody um, who lives in a flood prone home uh, in a low-income neighborhood, that their house, which is worth one hundred to one hundred ten thousand dollars, has to pay three thousand dollars a year for flood insurance because of of the risks in their flood history. 
um, they can't afford it. Uh, and if they, and if they tried to pay it, they, the, you know, that, that, that comes out of a very limited budget that they have available to put food on the table, to pay their utility bills. Um, you, you put them in an untenable situation where they have to choose between, you know, being without coverage, which they can't afford to be without or paying for coverage. They can't financially afford to purchase. Um, and they live in a place that's prone to flooding because of bad local decisions that were made in compliance with the National Flood Insurance Program. There's also this um, misunderstanding or with this with these floodplains and the way that we refer to them as 100-year floodplains or 500-year floodplains. It's actually a, a risk assessment, and it's not saying, hey, it floods here every 100 years. And whenever you break it down, it's actually in a 30-year mortgage in a 100-year floodplain. It's like a one-in-four chance that you're going to flood at some point during that mortgage. How do you communicate that with homeowners that are not interested in paying flood premiums? Yeah, I think more, uh, more people who are taking out mortgages need to have the flood risk explained to them by you, Kate, because the way (laughs) you put it. um, So I think we can have a requirement where, people listen to a pre-recorded message of what you just said before they buy a home. Perfect. And I think it would be a lot, a lot clearer to them. Can we just pass around this, this podcast? I mean, we get a lot of circulation. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be totally supportive of that. <laughs> um, but what, what you said is exactly right. And with, with this caveat, what you said is exactly correct. Assuming our assessment of the hundred year floodplain is correct. So if we have properly mapped flood risk and properly determined the area that is at a 1% chance each year of flooding, then we have correctly gauged the flood risk. The problem is we don't do that. Uh, I mean, how can we keep up? We've got sea level rise. We have a huge increase in heavy downpours um, in so many parts of the country that have increased flood risk. We have more concrete, which means we don't have the proper absorption of water. And so we have just exponentially increased our flood risk. And it takes a lot of time and money and resources to create these flood maps. And they have to be updated. How can we update them? It just feels like this yeah, like, like a, chasing this never attainable uh, exact figure. Yeah, no, that's exactly that's exactly right. Um, the way we the way we do uh, flood maps uh, suffers from a problem that runs throughout the flood insurance program. Um, those maps are produced on the assumption that. Uh, one, the flood risk 10 years from now is pretty much identical to flood risk 10 years ago. It doesn't really change. It's a, it's a static entity, and we refine our knowledge of it over time, uh, but it doesn't change in any major way. Well, that's completely wrong. It's wrong both because of the land use decisions that we make change the flood risk but it's particularly wrong because climate change is tilting the playing field uh, in one very specific direction for most 
parts of the country, and that is towards higher flood risks. But all of our flood maps are based on historical information. They're based exclusively on modeling of historical weather events and uh, current topography, hydrology, and bathymetry. Uh, they they take into they they fail to take into account the possibility of storms that exceed historic precedent, like we see uh, right now in Nebraska and the Midwest, and that we saw in Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Florence and Hurricane Michael, and you know insert insert your catas- catastrophic flood disaster of the last ten years. Um, it's a long list. Um, and they also fail to account for future projections of sea level rise. And this is also a problem that's well within Congress's uh, bailiwick to address this year. And I think there's a lot of interest in doing that. FEMA even has started to experiment with ways it can do this. Uh, it's currently working with the city of New York uh, to develop flood maps that that both um, show what the current flood risk is, and those maps will be used for purposes of determining the price somebody pays for an insurance policy, and then having another map that is more of a future-oriented map, and that map would be used for things like building codes and developing uh, development decisions, so that, hey, we're putting a big building up. It's going to be there for five decades. You know what we should do? we should figure out what the flood risk looks like in five decades and ensure that it's still going to be dry towards the ends of its life, not just during the first 10 years of its life. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It really does. We should do this. (laughs) It's well well within our technical capability. So is this one of the things that you see that is giving you hope or is leaving you feeling maybe a little more optimistic? Yeah, I I think there's... um, there is a lot of awareness uh, at FEMA uh, and within Congress uh, about the shortcomings of the program, uh, just as we've discussed. And I, th- I think it really comes down to um, cutting through the, the politics uh, to get to the solutions that everybody acknowledges are necessary. Um, the strange thing on flood insurance, uh, when you look at Congress, though, you know, we're all we're all used to Congress not being um, the most effective institution, perhaps, at addressing <laughs> uh, the nation's tactful. ills. Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, and and we we're all we're we're all too familiar from from the news every day about why that is. You know, there's this very partisan, almost tribal. Uh, nature to politics these days. The strange thing about flood insurance is that's not what's holding this up. Um, it's actually one of these rare areas that's more like politics of old, where you have Republicans and Democrats working together uh, and in alignment on many issues, and you have Republicans and Democrats in alignment opposing uh, those same solutions uh, for reasons that they should probably have to publicly explain. Um, so it's uh, it's refreshing in that uh, it's not politics as usual, but in some ways the result is the same. Um, it's very difficult to get the solutions we need put in place, even though it's it's not running aground on the uh, 
traditional reef of partisan politics. I can't thank you enough for digging into this with me and letting me go down some of these, you know, lines of thought. I probably could let this go on for another hour. We'll do a part two. We'll, we, we can dig into other aspects of this case. There are so many more, but thank you for giving us a basic overview and a better understanding of the National Flood Insurance Program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I would love to have a conversation with you. If you have had a personal experience with the NFIP, good or bad, if you have never heard of it, and this is your first time realizing that we have a government subsidized system for flood insurance. Let's have a conversation. Twitter's a great place to do it at WeatherKate. I would love to hear from you. And if you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you can get new episodes every Tuesday right into your app, ready for that morning commute or whatever you need during the day. Maybe it's your lunch break and you just need to drown out the coworkers for a little bit and hear my voice instead. <laughs> okay, a huge thanks to the producers of this podcast. Mia Beachhack, Dan Wright, Jim Robinson, Eric Zirkle, just the whole team here at weather.com who are just a joy to work with every single day. From my brain into yours until next Tuesday. 